It's your pal Siri. You have found the Ambiguously Blind Podcast, where we are challenging beliefs and revealing abilities that make people extraordinary. With your host, a guy that's great at hearing, but terrible at listening, John Grimes. Hey, 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 greetings. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, and supporting the podcast experience. I'm delighted to have Painter Sam with us on this episode. Hey, Sam. Hey. You say that your scars are your story, and we have something in common with our bacterial meningitis experience. So I kind of wanted to visit with you about that and find out a little bit more about the, the Painter Sam and I don't know, anywhere in between. Tell me about your, your meningitis story. And I think we're going to have some things where we probably overlap on some things and some things where we're, we're totally different. Basically, my mom was a very young mother. And so she was 18, 19 years old when she had me. She left her work and she thought I felt a little bit warm and I was, looked a little, they looked sick and I kind of um, had like flu symptoms. And while my mom left, I was still I was still just like a sick baby at that point, not super sick. But while my mom was at work, my grandparents were babysitting me. And my grandparents had called my mom and basically said, she's rapidly declined. We think she needs to go to the hospital. Like I was really, really hot, had a really high fever. And so my mom um, left work and came home. And obviously this was in the 70s, so they probably had to call her work and track her down. But um then my when my mom took me to the emergency room, the first emergency room that my mom had taken me to, and this is this is I feel like I tell my mother's story because it is my mom's story at this point. But when I get to the emergency room, the emergency room, the first one said, "Hey, we don't know what is going on with her. You have to take her to the other hospital." And so my mom took me to the other hospital. At this point, I had a very high fever, I 104, 105. I was very sick at that point, and I was like they couldn't they couldn't recognize the symptoms they quickly sent my mom to another hospital that had pediatrics at it and there I was just kind of treated like a sick baby in the emergency room not like fatally sick they didn't realize at the time and so I was in that waiting room unfortunately for like another hour and while I was in the waiting room my body went limp and my mom had rushed me up to the counter and basically was just like told the nurse's station you know she's just passed out I had fainted and I had, she's like, and she's got this bruise starting on her arm. So I started to get like the, the telltale signs of meningitis was the bruise that showed up. So once the bruise showed up and I was lethargic and passing out, um, and I was a baby, that's not a good sign. Um, a pediatric resident actually walked by the nurse's station when my mom was standing there and freaking out. And she actually ran up and grabbed me and said, that's meningitis. And she scooped me up. And then the next time my mom, um, they kind of they kept my mom updated, but at the next time my mom had seen me, she said I was completely black. Um, all my extremities, they were just went into like rescue mode to save my life, basically. And so in the process, my um, my extremities were saved. There actually was we had the pediatric resident, we had a lot of doctors that were quick to help, but we also there was also happened to be a plastic surgeon on staff that day at the emergency room, and so he, um, I think contributed a lot to saving my extremities. He was there acting quickly and they 
were able to, I, I don't even know. I want to say they wrapped my arms and legs in some kind of like, it creeps me out a little, like cadaver skin or something. Or <laughs> I don't know wow, the yeah. full parts of that story, but whatever it was, it saved my arms and legs. Like I might've been like animal. I don't know. I don't know. But it like saved my arms and legs. And um, it took, you know, from there, I believe I was in the hospital for six months to a year. And from that point, you know, I was about, I was a toddler by that point. And I just had, my face was just completely messed up. My, you know, in the end I lost the tips of my fingers. Um, most of my, the most of the fingers on my right hand, except my thumb. I think that they were really, really for the time period for like the seventies. I think that I, I just not even for the seventies in general, I think that hospital, the doctors on call were just really, just really on it about which, which of me to, that they were really focused on. I was like, they want, they wanted to make sure I had my pointer finger, my thumb. And they were just like really focused on that, I guess. So, I mean, luckily since I'm an artist that worked out for me. Um, so my face needed major work. My um, legs are covered in skin grafts. I have scars from the top of my legs to the bottom of my feet. I have a half of a right foot. Um, my left foot, I have a couple of toes missing. I have scars on the bottom of my feet. My arms are mostly skin grafts. Like my legs are skin grafts and my arms are skin grafts. And then I, my nose has had the most work probably. They just rebuilt my nose completely. And, um, I don't know. My mom is from a really big family. So she's, my mom's from an Irish Catholic family. And so there's 11 of them plus my grandparents. So they used to, they were all like, I hear stories from my aunts all the time where they were teenagers and taking turns, um, sitting with me in the hospital when I was a baby. And one of my aunts told me the story of like how, and it's really sad, actually it's sad. And it's sad that it's me that it happened to, but from, from my point of view, since I don't remember it, it's sad for me, for my aunt, I think that had to be traumatic for my family. Um, my aunt said that my sock was slipping off of my foot. And so she went to adjust my sock and she realized that my, my toes had fallen off. Mm, And so it was like, yeah, it was a tough time for my family. I think the, the, um, I was just, and I was extremely lucky. Like I said, I was, and I guess that's the mindset that I was grown up taught and taught my entire life. Like I was very lucky that they were able to say what they were able to say. And that I was, I survived because babies typically don't survive that or as sick as I was. Yeah. And you, you mentioned baby. I, I don't know if we know the, how old you were when that happened. I was um, nine, 10 months old. So, I mean, at the time, it, you know, the, it's hard for a 10 month old to obviously say what's wrong with them. But I had like the symptoms of just very, very high fever, very, very rapid onset of being sick very quickly. Yeah. But it sounds like it was the rash that, that gave it away. It was the rash that gave it away. It was in, and I had been at the hospital so long that like in the, in the waiting room, because that's just the way ERs work when you come in, you know, I think that it was easy to be, and, you know, and I always tell my story to young doctors because even when I would take my boys into the hospital or for any doctor's appointments and there was anybody young, I always share my story with them because I want them to instantly recognize symptoms because I know that my symptoms weren't recognized as quickly as they could have been. 
And I just happened to get really lucky that almost lucky that the bruise showed up and that someone just happened to be passing by, you know, it was, I was lucky in a lot of areas. So I guess that most of my life I was taught to just feel blessed and not to, not to take what has happened to me as a downfall. So I think that that, or as a, it was traumatic for my family and it was traumatic growing up having to adapt and all the different ways that I had to adapt with deformities and just trying to be a normal kid, but not being a normal kid and having the mindset of being a normal kid. Because like I said, my mom's family is huge. So I had a ton of cousins. And so I was constantly with people that treated me like somebody like, like everyone else. And then I would go somewhere and get treated like the kid that had scars and missing fingers and limped. And, you know, and so it was hard when I was younger, but I was always taught to feel blessed. And so I was never grew up thinking any kind of resentment towards what had happened. Yeah. I think that's good. The, the scar thing though is interesting because once you start seeing the, I'm sorry, not the scar thing, the, the splotching or the, the marks that are that indicate meningitis. When, once you get to that point, you know, that's when it starts getting super dangerous. It was very dangerous. Yeah. So the, the, the luckiness that you had that is also, you know, the curse because it's, it's getting close to being too late. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, I cannot tell you how many people have told me I'm a miracle because it was to that point that, I mean, my, my arms and legs were like, it started with that little, like one part of my arm, it started there where the bruising had started or rash or whatever. And then it spread to my arms and legs very quickly. And then my arms and legs were black. Like they had to warn my mom, like when you, you, when you see her, she is, she's black. Her body is black from like my entire body had gotten to that point. So that's why, you know, it was just a miracle that I have arms and legs and the ability to even walk on a foot that wasn't even made to really walk on at this point. You know, they were just trying to do their best and, I was really, really blessed with a really great plastic surgeon. That doctor was my plastic surgeon until I was like seven. So he did a bunch of reconstructive work. They like probably the initial stuff to help me. And then when I moved to Ohio, I had another doctor that actually his son is now my doctor. So I, um, I've been really fortunate with some really awesome plastic surgeons that have been caring and about helping me and not about, you know, whatever, like superficial about my scars and stuff. I have met superficial plastic surgeons that I just kind of left. And it was like, this is not why I asked you. Like I went one time for someone to um, look at my nose to help me breathe in the Baltimore, Maryland area. And it was like a Johns Hopkins doctor. And his focus was like trying to shrink the scars on my arms. And it was like, yeah, that's not really why I came to talk to you. <laughs> I wanted to be able to breathe out of my nose, but yeah, you're not going to practice shrinking the scars on my arms because those are there and I'm fine with it. Like I'm totally okay with that. Yeah. As you say, your, your scars are your story. They are my story. And it was something that I had to learn to embrace as I got older. And I think, you know, I started to I started to paint and draw when I was really young. Like I, in the hospital, I started drawing and I didn't actually start painting for a while, but I started drawing in the hospital. And then just growing up, I took drawing lessons. I, gosh, I don't even know how old I was, maybe seven or eight. I started taking drawing lessons pretty young. And then I 
just kept focusing on drawing. And I never really even thought that I had any different skill set than anybody else until I was maybe seventh grade and I got an art award from my middle school. And I was shocked that I even was recognized or acknowledged for artwork. And then it was like, huh, maybe I have something here. I remember thinking that. And then in high school, I took 25 art classes or something crazy. I went to a big high school and I took it. They had to start making up classes for me to take. And so by the time I got to college, I was, and I, and, you know, and I think I always kind of turned back to my artwork to help, help me heal or help me come like, it's, I mean, no matter what, like I can say, oh, my scars are my story and they're my badge of honor, but it was still really hard to be a kid in a middle school or in a high school kid. I can't imagine. With all these, yeah. yeah, it was really tough. So I think my art ability at that point was almost like a shield for me, like, oh, but she can draw so well. And then I, as I, as I got older and I became a mom, then it kind of transformed and I realized, oh shit, like my mom, sorry, <laughs> I'm such a cusser, it's so bad. But I was like, I realized like what my mom has been through. And I was like, you know, I, I guess that's another part of the story for me is that my husband and I, um, I, we lost our first baby at two days old. So we had, I had, um, we went to like our 20 week doctor's appointment for, you know, when you're excited parents and you go and they said, you know what, something doesn't look quite right here. Your amniotic fluid is kind of low. And they gave me, um, basically I had to stay on bed rest and I was on bed rest. And unfortunately, and my, my OBGYN felt terrible. He just was like, I hate to tell you this, but, and I know that it's the last thing that you want to hear, but you're going to have to go in the hospital. And I, it was at that point when I was pregnant and in the hospital and it's unbelievable. I made it, um, 11 weeks pregnant in the hospital before I finally went into labor. And so it was during that time when I think I really started to be like, Oh my God, I cannot believe that I like the, the smell of the hospital, the feeling of being in the hospital, the staying like night and day. It was just that's when it really started to to become a reality to me, like of everything that I had been through and everything my mom had been through. And in the end, Jonas was born um, an emergency C-section at 34 weeks, and then he survived two days. And so that was really rough because I had basically cleaned out my studio to make it a nursery. And then I had to go home to that empty space. And so it was really kind of the start of when I started to really, I don't know, I just took off, like from there, I just kind of took, I just had a lot more courage about my artwork. And I started to realize that it was my platform and it was my voice and I could either sink into this grief of loss, or I could take it as here's another time in my life when I have to do something. And I, and I opted to um, paint butterflies and I'm not even an insect person. So it was the reason I painted butterflies was because in the hospital, um, on the maternity floor, when a mother or when a mother loses a baby, they put a butterfly on your door. And so since I was a resident on that floor for 11 weeks, I got to know everybody on on all the nurses and Jason would, um, push me around like the floors and we would go on just, we, I couldn't walk. Like they were trying to keep me from, I was on bed rest, but I was able to like move around and I would see butterfly on the door every now and then. And I asked um, one of the nurses once and she told me that the butterfly was so that the doctors and 
um, hospital staff would know when a mother had lost a baby. And it kind of was like a symbol for people to have that, um, you know, just before you go in to have that empathy. And then I ended up being one of those people with the butterfly. And so the first really set of artwork I did for that was um, I used my art studio or my nursery to turn it back to an art studio. And it was horrifying and sad, but it was um, as young parents or new parents, it was tough for Jason and I, but it was like, I was determined and it was like, this was not, I realized that all of your life experiences kind of lead you to somewhere. And I had realized at that point that all of the trauma, all of the things that I had been through with the scars and the meningitis and, you know, having my mom's, you know, infant story, which was me being sick in the hospital. And then just so many similarities there that it kind of taught me like this, this isn't where I stop. Like, I think some, some people will get intimidated and be like, Oh, I can't have any more children because this could happen to me again, because it was a preterm labor kind of situation, which is tricky. And so I was determined to get over it. And I knew that the best way for me to heal my grief was to paint. And so I painted some butterflies for that maternity floor in Annapolis. Um, and then from there, I, my, my sister-in-law and my sister were pregnant at the same time as me. And so from there, I wanted our families to be able to celebrate the babies that were born. And I think that there was some sadness and grief for Jason and I, because we were supposed to have these babies, you know, our, we were going to have nephews and nieces, the same age as our son. And then we were the, we didn't have our son. And then my niece and nephew, you know, it's, a blessing and it was also hard, but I wanted, I love babies. I love, I love babies. I'm just a, I was a babysitter my whole life. So I wanted our families to know that we loved and cherished those babies. So I did a painting, um, with Bryce and Brianna and this butterflies and that painting actually got a lot of attention, um, nationally. And I did some interviews on that. And then from there, it just kind of took off from there where I started painting, people for people that had lost a baby or people that had lost a, a loved one, a child for parents that had lost children. I was doing a lot of memorial portraits and that is actually what led me to um, sharing my meningitis story was somebody interviewed me about the butterfly portraits and asked me about my fingers and my scars. And I was like, Oh, no one's really, no one had really asked me about it before. And I had explained that I had meningitis and that article somehow made it to Lynn Bozoff of the National Meningitis Association. And she reached out to me because she had lost her son and she had saw that I was doing the memorial portraits. And she said, um, you know, she reached out to me and just said, you know, we're a meningitis support group and we do these things to advocate. And they, she asked if I was interested in doing anything. And I, was in my thirties. I had never met anybody or talked to anybody. And like, I talked to you about that, like how isolating it can be. And it's very isolating when you don't know anybody else that has your experience. And then to all of a sudden have this world of people where they were doing all this help and doing all these things that it just opened up me, my abilities to just fully talk about meningitis a lot more than I ever had before. Yeah. That's how we connected through uh, NMA and through Como another meningitis organization. And before 
I was aware of those organizations. I didn't know anybody else either. And um, our stories are, are, there's a lot of similarities, but there's probably more differences really than similarities. And probably the starkest one I can think of is when you say my scars are my story, you have, you know, right or wrong or whether it's good or bad for you, you have an outward facing, you know. Um, oh, yeah. You, know, you have no, scars. I can imagine. That, right. So. Yeah. And so people like you that maybe aren't, it's not written on your face, so to speak. Like yeah. literally it's written on my face and my skin. Like most people think I've been in an accident or something, but it is, it's there. Yeah. And I have a story written on my face, but I can understand how for you that would be difficult because you have to say, well, this is what happened to me. I don't fully know your story. So I was 19. Um, actually, today is the anniversary of my story. Oh, wow. February 7th, 1998 for me, uh, 25 years ago. And I was a uh, sophomore in college. I thought I was had the flu or I wasn't feeling well. And I took some, I mean, I'm gonna make a super long story short here. There's a lot of intricate details that I'm going to just breeze through here, but I'm actually in the process of writing a book um, oh, wow. that should be out later this year. Um, we're working pretty hard on that. So I'll, I'll uh, save all the details for that anyway. But the, uh, I took some medicine cause I thought I wasn't feeling good and I went to sleep and a uh, friend of mine and, and I went to sleep in my apartment in college. And in fact, I told my room, I had two roommates and I told them, I was like, Hey, I'm, I am super sick. You guys, I don't know what this is, but, um, it's pretty bad. So stay away. And my, my roommates actually heeded my advice and left and spent the night somewhere else that night. And, uh, a friend of mine who was coming over the next day to do something, um, came over and found me. I was face down on the floor of my bedroom. Oh my um, God. Out of it. And so I was in a coma for eight days. That's so scary. And that's like the, I mean, that's what's really that you're that age that was like, it's really important that kids in high school and get their vaccines now. And in the nineties, obviously none of us knew any better. Yeah. And there weren't vaccines anyway, I'm pretty sure. Definitely not for all of them. I think there maybe were some military grade. Yeah. The military guys got them and stuff, but not yeah. Not everybody yet. And it really wasn't, I mean, like, like, you, like we were saying, it is just like a disease that not a lot of people even know, but I mean, people still don't know a lot about it. And so I think sometimes I feel like as, um, as an advocate or a spokesperson or someone that works out, like I, I know that it's meningococcal disease and we know as survivors that it's men- meningococcal disease and we know it's the meningococcal vaccine, but to an everyday person, they're still learning what bacterial meningitis is. So I feel like for me, I tell people bacterial meningitis. And when I talk about the vaccine, I'll say it's actually called the meningococcal vaccine. But people do not understand. Like I've seen it even for our middle school boys when they when the nurse will post something on the school website, like everybody needs to get there meningococcal vaccine, I always write something and say, that's the meningitis vaccine, everybody. Like, so everybody knows yeah. because mm-hmm. you just, a lot of people don't have no idea what meningococcal is. Yeah. I feel like meningitis is more known. Oh, it's much more known-ish and yeah. it's much, it's much easier to say. But still not, not known well for sure, but it's of the two, that would definitely be the one that people would understand soon, uh, quicker. Yeah. I mean, I actually had someone um, my son had like a rash that was really bad and it was like a, I can't remember what it was called. It was some kind of an autoimmune thing that 
he doesn't have autoimmune disease, but it was like an onset of something. And the resident at the children's hospital came in. And the first thing he said to me was, so it's not meningitis. And I was like, stop, buddy. Like I immediately was like, wait a minute. First of all, he's got no fever. Second of all, let me tell you about meningitis. So I took the opportunity to talk to that guy for a while because it was like, obviously he doesn't have meningitis, dude, because if he did, I wouldn't be sitting here right now. I was like more worried about like, is he having an allergic reaction? But it was like, I, I, there's moments like that where I'm just so grateful. I'm like, oh yes. Now I get to tell this, this young doctor at this children's hospital, like, hey, he doesn't have a fever. Let's start with some things here. Cause this is definitely like, it was like, it was, it was a rash. It was nothing like, he was a, he was a student. It was not, it was just a easy learning opportunity for me. Yeah. What the, the, imagine the, the coincidence there, I guess. Right. I know I'm sitting there. I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> dude. <laughs> but then on the flip side, I took my son to an urgent care one time, another, my other son. And, um, he, he had like something, he was sick for something. And the, the doctor that came in and was like, um, had asked me about myself. And I said, I can't remember if he asked if I had meningococcal or what was, you know, and I told him that I had meningitis and that I was totally fine. Or maybe I had a vaccine save sweatshirt on. I think that's what it was. And I said that I was um, representing the meningococcal vaccination and that I wanted to do whatever and whatever. And he was like, can I give you a hug? He said that he was an emergency room doctor and he was an emergency room doctor for like 30 years and he had never met a baby that survived. And he was like, I just, I just want to give you a hug. I'm just so happy to see a baby that survived. That's amazing. And that was like, I know, I was like, that was the nicest thing I think a doctor has ever said to me, other than like my doctors that I love. But <laughs> like, it was like the nicest thing in the world to actually have a doctor that was recognized the disease and was just grateful to see a walk in a baby that has grown up and made it. And a little bit ago, you mentioned that, you know, without the rash or things, it, it's much less obvious for me. There was, I was, it wasn't obvious either. They thought I had a, had a drug overdose. They thought that's why I was unresponsive, um, which definitely wasn't the case. So it wasn't until the, the, uh, lumbar puncture, the spinal tap that they understood, which they did perform pretty quickly, which is what saved, you know, made me yeah. even more lucky than I am. But what is it you tell people, you say you tell people or you tell doctors things to look for, even when the rash isn't present? Um, mostly the high fever and not to ever be dismissive about flu symptoms in a, ch in a child, especially a child that's young and can't communicate as easily like what's going on or college students and high school students and children that have been at camps to just be, you know, do not brush it off as quote unquote, just the flu. It's not just the flu. It's not always just the flu. If you have that consistent, like a high fever and your patient has like, you know, the, just the telltale signs of, um, what is it? Like people get really bad headaches, people and like, like stiff necks, I've, stiff I've neck. Yeah. The, the sensitivity to light. I think the most important thing is like the fever and feeling just like, like total crap and how it comes on so fast. And not to be, not to quickly just be like, oh, this baby's teething or they've got just a virus or, you know, and I, I mean, like I said, with my own kids, I'm sure I was, I was extra paranoid when they were younger where I would be like, um, I had one, one doctor tell me that my son had the flu 
And I was like, he does not have the flu. He's had the flu shot seven years straight. He doesn't have the flu. I can you just, I said, test him then. And so she tested him and he came back negative. And so they tested him for strep throat and he had strep throat. And then she was like, you were right. I should have, I should have checked before. And it was like, I think that maybe, um, learning to be your own advocate is obviously extremely important. And for in your case, that'd be next to impossible since you weren't coherent, but I mean, just listening to the patient and listening to their parents and not always just brushing it off as a simple, not the flu is not simple, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and a lot of time has passed. Um, it's been about 25 years for me. It's been a little longer for that, for you on that too. So, yeah, like 45 years. <laughs> well, who's counting, right? But you you didn't really know life before meningitis. If you're nine months no, old, it's, you don't, it's don't have been, those memories. It's basically been 45 years of meningitis. Like I have lived it my entire life. I could still walk into my plastic surgeon's office and get reconstructive surgery on my legs. I just, I had... um so I had the mostly facial reconstruction through my childhood and then um, a little bit of stuff here and there in high school. High school was difficult because it was like starting to become a realization like, oh my God, like I'm really different than everybody else. And then in college I had, they had done a little bit to my face and to my arm. And then after I moved back to Ohio as an adult, after my husband got out of the Navy, I had done an interview about my artwork on um, the Columbus News, and they had shared my story. And my childhood doctor saw the interview and emailed me and was like, I don't know if you remember me, but I was your doctor. And I was like, of course I remember you. And he told me that his son um, had a practice here, and it would I want to meet with he and his son. And I was so grateful because we hadn't lived in Ohio in forever and I had spent, you know, so much time meeting doctors that weren't familiar with the disease or weren't familiar with my scars. And to just know like that my doctor, Dr. Hauser Sr. was around in Columbus, wanted to see me, wanted to introduce me to his son. And it was just, and once I met him, I ended up having um, Dr. Hauser, still my doctor. And he, I mean, he saved my legs because my legs, my the skin grafts on my legs had not been touched since I was a toddler. Like, so the skin grafts on my, the scars on my legs were so tight and constricting that I couldn't really bend my legs very well. It was painful. And so what they did for me was he, um, he was really using the um, fat grafting reconstructive surgery for women that had experienced uh, breast cancer to rebuild their breast tissue and so he was like, hey, we should try this on your legs to go, you know, in between underneath the scars to put the fat, take the fat out of one place and put it back in. And so, of course, I had, I was a mom with toddlers. So I was like, hell yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you can experience with lipo with me. Like, so he would take fat from one place and he said, that's how he knew he would get me. But, and so he also worked on my face a little bit. I like, he, he did a little bit on my nose um, because I couldn't breathe out of my right nostril. And so he went in to open that up. He said, as soon as he touched that, it just kind of, my skin just flew open. So he was, it was a touchy area. So hopefully I don't have to get my nose messed with too much, but he, um, 
the it ended up I ended up having about six of those surgeries. I think they were so painful to recover from. I mean, the lipo part was nothing. Now I have heard that that was because my legs were in so much pain that I did not. He's like, you shouldn't tell people that lipo doesn't hurt. But for me, it was like he was just taking a, like a um, what do you call it? Like a donor area. So he was taking a donor area. So I thought that little hole in my stomach doesn't hurt at all compared to my legs because he was like to do the the reconstructive work on my legs, he was going like they separate that scar tissue that's been there for 40 years or 30 at the time it was like 35 years and separating it from the muscle. Cause my scar tissue had attached to my muscle. And so that's why my legs weren't moving well. And so they went under there and reinserted fat, basically stem cells and fat back under my, under the scars. And it actually, I mean, it, it, like a miracle for my legs. Like I, it's been really successful. I could, I, and then on one leg, he also reconstructed part of my upper thigh, which really needed it, which was really like retracting and my other side could use it, but it was so painful towards the end there that I was just like, I couldn't, I, (sighs) there's not probably not even any bargaining I could get to get me there at this point. Like I'm so over uh, only operating room. I would like, is like, something fun and cosmetic. I don't know. <laughs> something anti-aging. Like I don't, I'm not really feeling the, uh, I'm not really feeling dealing with scar reconstructive work. I've, I've kind of had my share at this point. Definitely done the fair share of that you're saying. Yeah. And then to like, it, it's just revisiting all that stuff. is never fun. And then it was just painful recovery, but you know, I, I did it. It worked out. I, I, I feel like it really helped my legs a lot. And now I'm I'm working on my night. I'm almost to 900 rides on my Peloton bike, which I would have never been able to do before that surgery um, for all those reconstructive surgery on my legs. So that's amazing. That's great. How far you ride? Oh, I am at, let's see. Well, I'm, I'm at like 800 and I've taken like 865 classes, I think right now. And then, and that's in like two years. So I do it a lot. I do it almost, I did, Three three classes today. Today I think I did about eleven miles, and this month so far I've done one hundred and fifty miles. So my goal is usually to try to do two hundred miles a month on my bike, which is a lot. That is a lot. That's pretty good. Yeah, it is a lot. But I like cookies, so I have to balance it out. <laughs> and I and it's kind of addicting because it's actually oh my gosh I forgot like I am going to London. Um, I'm tagging along with Jason. I'm going to London. Um, in a few weeks, and I'm going to do a live Peloton class. There have been a lot of times in my life when I'm like, why do I always have, why am I always so much braver than I need to be? <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And of course, because I'm talkative and I share my story, I told Peloton I was coming to their class and and they saw my story and we, oh my God. So now mm-hmm. I'm going to be on camera Right. And I've never even taken, I've never even taken a group exercise class in my life. Like I've nice. only done it by myself. So I am taking my first class in, in London, England on camera. I'm like, this is lovely. This is, <laughs> I am way too brave for myself sometimes. Yeah. Well, you've, you've got a, enough of a life story to be, be super brave about a lot of things. So that'll be fun. Like when I, um, all the, all the, like any of the times that I had, um, when I was helping with the legislation in Ohio, like I was 
I was pretty big into the, or I hate to say I was a big part of it, but I, I was a big part of pushing the um, Ohio mandates first, the middle school mandates. And we got that law passed and it was super awesome. But when they asked me if I would testify and I, I had no idea what I was doing. Like I, I actually went one time I went to the, um, the CDC in Atlanta and I spoke to the ACIP panel about the need for a meningitis vaccine for babies because in England and Australia, they're giving babies the vaccine, which would be amazing here. But I, when I had to do that, I realized like, Oh my God, when I got there, it was like set up like Congress. And I was like, Oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? (laughs) Like I was like super nervous. And then, you know, in the Ohio legislature stuff, I had to speak to Congress, had to speak to Senate, had to speak to the governor it was like, what am I doing talking to John Kasich right now? It was really crazy. Like every time I'm in these situations, I'm like, am I like sitting in an ugly sweater contest? I'm good morning America. <laughs> like what am I doing? And it never, it always seems like at first I'm like, sure. And then it's like, oh my God, I cannot believe I agreed to do that. And so right now that's what my husband's going through. It's me being, oh, and I drug Jason along. Like I love to do on on everything that I have done to share my story, I dragged my quiet, sweet husband in with me. So I, we did, um, I got a tattoo on, on New York Inc., which was like a spinoff of Miami Inc. So I got a tattoo where they had covered the original meningitis scar that I had the first one from the rash. They covered that with a butterfly painting and told my story. So that one, it was like, Oh my God, I'm going to have to go get this tattoo. It took like 12 hours. It was the longest tattoo of my wow. life. 12 I know, hours. And, and yeah, it took forever because they stopped because they, because you're filming your story. And so they have to stop and talk to you. Then they go back and start working on it and then they stop and talk to you. So my arm was like on fire. Like people that do the tattoos on those shows don't get enough credit. <laughs> like the tattoo artists work really hard and the people sitting there, you're like the longest tattoo of your life. Like oh, so it was, it was on the TV show you're saying? Yeah, it was on, um, on New York Inc. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's been a while. It's been like 11 years or something. It's been a while. And then after that, it was on TLC. And I think it's on, It's on, it was on Netflix for a while. And then I did another one where I talked to uh, a medium on TLC. And that time I also drugged Jason with me. So in the tattoo show, Jason's beside me, like being my silent partner in crime. And um, basically though, they didn't show when they asked, when they asked me um, what he's like, so you want a a half a sleeve? And I was like, sure. But then Jason's like, no, 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 she doesn't. (laughs) So it was like, um, but they didn't show that part. But then they also, um, Jason and I did the medium show where we met Rosie Sapiro, which is a, a medium that, She's angels and she was actually the most, oh my God, one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. Like her, her house, like you go like on the show, you would go out to her house and it's in upstate New York and she has like a log cabin, but beautiful house. And she had like an altar. Like once you got there, you're like, oh, this is for real. Like this is not cameras. This is, this is real stuff. And so that was really fun. But Jason was drug along with me for that one. And now he's getting drug along to Peloton Studios. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, he was actually like, maybe I'll do the treadmill because we actually have the bike and the treadmill. The treadmill. Now, I did try to walk on the treadmill and do some of the treadmill classes. But my doctor was like, why? 
Like, you know, like, my foot's lousy. And he's like, why would you do that? You have the bike. Like, there's no need to try to force yourself to walk on that thing. So I was like, you know what? That's right. But we, so he was like, maybe I should do a treadmill class. And I was like, hell no, you're not. Mm-hmm. You're coming with me. You're riding a bike next to me. I hope that they put them next to me. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they will. But when you're not tell uh, on the bike or traveling the world or parenting, you're painting, right? You're in the studio painting. And as we're talking, I'm I'm scrolling through your portfolio and there's just a lot of really cool stuff here. I was mostly drawn to the portrait stuff. And even more specifically, uh, and I'm at paintersam.com for those of you at home. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes of the podcast. You can just scroll down and click on that link. But under the portfolio, there's some um, profile pictures. And I, I noticed that there's a lot of people, a lot of recognizable people you've painted. Yeah, I had, um, well, I think I have been drawing people's faces since I was little and I'm sure like subconsciously it had a lot to do with the fact that my face was always examined so much. And I had like doctors being an artist on my face. And I, so I, I could draw a portrait from a photograph at a very young age in high school, I I know I drew Kurt Cobain in high school at some point. Is that the same one? Because there there's oh, some no, incredible no. Skills, drawings on here. My my um no, I did do a portrait of him, and I have it somewhere. But I those I did actually created for well because I studied portraiture. I studied it in college too, and then it was like, you know what? How, I I connected with the gallery, and I wanted to have a solo exhibit, and it was like, what? How can I showcase my portrait skills, but have it in a way that everybody wants to be involved in it, and like people recognize and know that I can draw this person? And so that's how I did the celebrities. I did like um, John Lennon and Kirk Cobain and Janis Joplin, Martin Luther King. Um, I think I did Anne Frank. And Frank's that whole in here. series, Jimi Hendrix is in. Oh here. yeah, and and so I did. Amy Winehouse. Pencil. Oh yeah, Amy Winehouse with the painting. I did. Um, some of them are pencil and charcoal sketches, and then I did a painted collage background of like their life stories because all of them had really. It was like my way of telling their life story through art. So because everybody I picked pretty much had tremendous life stories, and so. Um, Amy Winehouse, that was a painting. That one was fun. Um, I did a couple of paintings of people and then some drawings. And that show was really awesome. I All those paintings sold. It was pretty cool, the, those ones. And then um, after that, I did a – I just started doing cityscapes because I kind of started thinking of, like, okay, what's another person I can paint? And I'm like, I guess I could paint Columbus. And so I started painting cities and and thinking of it in the same way as portraits. I, you know, I go back and forth between being this like super colorful, expressive style, but no matter how expressive I think my artwork is, I am really caught on, I has to be, it's just, it's just my, I guess my technical side has to be recognizable. I am not good at artwork that you're not like immediately like, oh, that's Columbus, Ohio, or if you know Columbus or, oh, that's the Chrysler building. Or that's Amy Winehouse or, you know, John mm-hmm. Lennon. Like, I like to, I'm not, I wouldn't be very good at, like, random abstract art. My brain doesn't work that way because just, I I, I think I go through ups and downs too because, like, um, dealing with, like, I think in the, and 
sometimes I even have to remind myself, like in the core of who I am as an artist, I am still a meningitis survivor and I do struggle with pain like daily, like my, like pain gets to me daily. And so sometimes it's like, it gets the better on me where I'm like, I haven't created any artwork in a while, or I've gotten to the pattern for so long of, of being, um, I had such a long wait list for a long time that I just was painting what people told me to paint and I kind of lost who I was. So I kind of stepped away from the commissions for a little bit and just started to try to get back to who I am and what, what I wanted to paint just randomly. So recent, my more recent stuff is just some stuff. Like I painted Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I did that on my own accord. Um, yep. I see her. Right I had here. listened to her. I want to say I um, watched part of the documentary. I actually started watching the documentary and then I stopped. And I was like, I got to paint her. And then I went back and I went and someone, a gallery owner also said, what about Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Maybe that's what it was. And then I watched her um, documentary. And then I spent this week painting her. I had listened to everything that she had said. I listened to her book. I listened to her. I watched her documentary while I'm painting. I like had it playing in the background. I, I just listened to her and hung out with her for like a week. I posted that painting and then she died like three days later. Mm. It was just really crazy timing. And it was like heartbreaking because I felt like I was like, oh my God, I just hung out with her all this time. And so um, that painting sold like really quickly. But that was something that I was just, I I just like just happened. Like I wasn't painting her as a memorial portrait. I was painting her to honor her and it just happened to, she just happened to pass away. Then I was like, oh, no, I don't want to paint anybody else. <laughs> but I ended up painting. Um, so most of the portraits that I come across now is because I've read a book. Because I started becoming like a book fanatic like the past few years. And so I read like 50 books a year. And that has kind of influenced my artwork, too, because now I'm listening to books. Like I've learned how I never understood. Well, this drives my husband crazy because it's so terrible. I will buy the book, like the actual book on Kindle, like to read it. Cause I, I'm a visual. I like to be able to, to picture it in my own mind. Mm -hmm. I don't want like somebody else's voice narrating what's going on sometimes. Yeah. But then, like I said, while I'm working, I like to hear the story. So I go back and forth between reading and listening to a book. And Jason, who started taking my advice and like, he'll be like, what book should I read? And I'm like, oh, we have it on Kindle and Audible. And he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, Amazon makes it pretty easy to do that, actually. So, yeah. I know. And then you're like, oh, man. Yeah. You I just have to buy it twice. That's the, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And sometimes, yeah. And that's where, that's where the husband part did. I was right. like, what? We have both of every one of these? And I'm like, no, not everyone. But and most I also of them, have, yeah. <laughs> I, and I do buy the hard copy of the books that I love. I, so sure. some of them, we have three. <laughs> and well, I, the right authors now, love I'm reading, that, I'm sure, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and I get, actually, I've been getting a lot of books, um, advanced reader copies. So on my Instagram, when I post a book, most of those are the advanced copies. So I've been really lucky in getting books from the publishers before they're printed. And I just have to give like a review. And if I post them on my Instagram, it's just books I like. I don't post all the ones, like some of them I haven't, I haven't liked, like, it looks like I love every single book I read, but I just post the ones that I really, really like. Now, there's one other I want to ask you about here as I'm scrolling through your your portfolio. Website. Yeah. I'm I'm scrolling through here and a lot of these faces I recognize, some I don't without looking a little closer, but I'm telling you there's one there's one that looks like you. 
you said you'd like to paint people with interesting stories. Um, obviously, you've got a pretty unique and interesting story, but how do you paint yourself? Is that tough? Or is this, I don't know if this is a painting or if it's a chalk I or not even charcoal. Cool on website. Yeah, it's, um, it's paintersam.com, I think. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know why. So I <laughs> I used to draw myself a lot. And I mainly, like, you know, I, I am a big Frida. I'm sure you're in Texas, so you guys have awesome Frida artwork everywhere. I love Frida. I yeah. love Frida's story. We have a lot in common. I see you know, her painting through her pain. Yeah. yeah, you know, she's she was a female painter in a time that there were not a lot of female painters. She's still one of the most famous female painters. Most people can't even name anybody that's a woman artist in history. So she's uh, like, I love her for that, but I love her because she was um, disabled and she was like rocked that disability and she created artwork through it. She was in a car accident. You know, she, they have images of her laying in bed in a cast and painting. So she's always been my mentor. And someone actually asked her, why does she paint herself so much? And it's because you're the easiest one there. You're there. And it's also like a very raw experience. I actually considered painting myself again recently, but then I'm like, uh, like how many times can I paint myself? I, um, but then, yeah, you are the easiest subject. And it's also hard. It's not easy. I would imagine it is like, hard because you're going to be super critical. or very... I am extra critical of myself. One of my friends said that the pencil drawing of me, um, someone said that was like, uh, your face does not quite look like that. I'm like, yeah, it does. And I'm not <laughs> going to not, I'm not going to be kind about, like, I'm not going to shortcut my own face. Like, and, and I think like, um, like again, Frida is an example where she accentuated her eyebrow and everything else. I think that's just a natural way to like you have to explain your own story. Some of the some of these I'm looking at my my portraits now. All of a sudden, in here, some of these are. Um, there is a painting of a boy. Now I do have a question for you. So you can see okay to see artwork. Oh, well, it's kind of hard to describe. I'm ambiguously blind, as we kind of touched on. It's it's difficult to describe. I'm totally blind in my right eye, so that's pretty easy to understand. And uh -huh. I have about 2,300 vision in my left eye. So as I'm looking at these pictures um, on my computer screen, it's it's enlarged. So okay. like, if you can just imagine one of these paintings takes up like the entire screen. I mean, they're they're probably pretty good size to start with anyway. Yeah, um, you know what? I'm realizing my files are way too big on here. I was like, wow, these would be really easy to just... Well, they seem like they're proportionately so there's okay. A, okay, but... there's a picture um, on... if it said, Like, if you go to more art mm -hmm. on my portfolio page, if you scroll down, some of their... There is some... There is some um, of me at some of the NMA events and... Um, uh, us with the Bill Kasich with the with the Ohio bill signing to pass the meningitis vaccines in Ohio, and then there's one. Um, oh, Dion, you really missed out on some of the on the galas because they had some really great, really really great people would come to that gala. Um, Dion Branch came to the gala one year, and I am obviously a football fanatic, so I would <laughs> not quit talking to him. Yeah. I was told I hogged them, and I'm like, I couldn't quit. I was like, <laughs> I had a football player on me. I had to talk to him. But below that picture of him is um, 
uh, I can't remember what the brother's name is. Landon was uh, a toddler that passed away that had meningitis, and that is his surviving brother. So mm. it's a picture. Of, um, he's it's a toddler holding a picture of a little boy. A drawing that I did in that like same style that I did the celebrity memorial portraits. Yeah, that's cool. To give you a little bit more description from before, have you seen the movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Of course, it's yeah. Like the best movie ever. You know, it's number one of my best movie of all time. So there's a scene where they go to the art gallery, uh huh, and Cameron is standing in front of. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay, so he. What they like do when he the, looks in, he looks at the dots and the dots and the dots of yeah, the Yeah, they, they just keep getting smaller and smaller and he keeps zooming in. So I'm not zoomed in on the pixels like like he gets to, but that's kind of what I'm doing is if you can imagine looking, that's a famous painting, right? What What is it? Mm-hmm. I think it's the Surratt painting, but I can't remember. Probably. I, I, I wouldn't know, but I, I mean, remember I, I remember the scene because I've seen it so many times. But. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I always tell people that when I'm like talking about when I, the way I use color is very similar. I'm like, that scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off or that that museum is in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, I don't get that zoomed in. But just imagine looking at something where you're you have to pan, literally move your eyes or move the the painting or move whatever you're looking at kind of around the. I look at small parts of it and then try to piece it all together to make it kind of a whole image. So, wow. So, um, it's a different way to do it. I don't necessarily recommend it, but it's the way I do. It. It's the way I do it. So, you know, we got to make so ag- can, adaptations. So do you, do you actually like, um, abstract art you think, because it, is it easier for you to relate to? Um, I don't, I don't know, Sam, nobody's ever asked me that question. That's a, that's a good one. I don't, I don't know. I don't even know how to answer. Like that. with, like, can you see color? Yeah, you think I see you colors. See, you see colors vividly as like obviously my my paintings. Some of my paintings are very bright. Like I, when I was in college, that was one class that that was really why I went into painting is because I took a color theory class and I just like absorbed it. I was like, I get it. I understood it. Colors talk to me. I know how to paint them. I know how to paint them without them getting muddy and weird. And I just like to be as vibrant and colorful as possible. So I, I can imagine if you um, had a seeing impairment that it would be fun to look at whimsical, bright, colorful movement. But I don't know if that would be overwhelming too. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I just have to see kind of some, I, maybe, I don't know, I'd have to see some things to, to tell you specifically. But there's another painter that, um, you're not actually the first painter I've had on the podcast. There's a, a guy named John Bramblett. Okay. He actually lives very near me. He's in the North Texas area. And he's totally blind and he uh, paints and he does some pretty amazing painting. I'll send you, I'll link to that in the show notes too. Okay. Um, his episode too. But I think it's bramblet.com is his website. B R A M B L I T, maybe. I, I'm, I can't, I'm blanking out on his name. But you want to talk about somebody that paints in vibrant colors. He says, he he paints uh, like he feels color. He he knows what red. He can't see color. He can't see anything, but he knows what red is based on the way it makes him feel or kind of an emotion that he gets. And uh, he does some pretty incredible stuff. But you guys, you guys artists are are amazing. I wish I I wish I had the the bug to be able to do that. I, I'm sure it's not easy, but um, it, it oh I like see. But I always think I think because I know how to do it. I'm always like everybody can do it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's not the case. 
But anybody can buy this stuff. I don't know if any of the stuff is any of the stuff for sale or what if somebody wants to contact you about? Um, I'm fortunate where a lot of the stuff is already sold. That's on my site, but I do take, I did open up my um, commission. My commissions are open again. You can place the order online. I usually tell people to email me first, just so I have a, an idea of what they're looking for. And then, um, I have gone back and forth with my prices and I, I have argued with places before where I think I, I just don't believe that artwork should be a fortune and it should be attainable to everybody. But then on the other hand, I also think at this point in my career, I have a different opinion because my artwork is unique to me and I'm now a much more experienced artist than I was in my more humble days. And so I'm like, eh, you know, I, on one hand, my prices are a little bit high on some stuff like portraits. I probably a little pricey, but the dog art, is easy. It's fun for me to do. I like to try to keep those affordable as possible, like $135 and around there and up for the bigger ones because I have to pay for shipping and supplies. But then, you know, I try to, I always try to tell people like, just tell me your budget. Like, what do you have in mind? I very rarely am I, well, sometimes I'm like, okay, that's a no. But if someone has a story and they want some artwork, I'm I'm pretty generous sometimes with a lot of that stuff. I always tell people, just tell me your budget, but people are too embarrassed sometimes. But I'm pretty flexible with it. Awesome. All right. So they'll go to paintersam.com and check your stuff out. And what's your email address? Um, Samantha at paintersam. I'm, I'm, I'm easy to find on Instagram too. I use Instagram a lot. I'm paintersam on everything. I haven't thought that through totally sometimes, but I am paintersam on every social media thing. Well, you're everywhere, Sam, and uh, it's exciting. So we'll link to all those social media places down below and your websites and encourage people to go check it out. There's really some incredible stuff on here. Well, thank it's you. It's quite amazing, and you've got quite an amazing story, Sam. So thanks a bunch for stopping by. Uh, thanks so much for having me, and I'm so glad that we connected. Thanks for spending time with the Ambiguously Blind podcast. Please rate and write a review wherever you subscribe and connect and share with us at ambiguouslyblind.com.